Today is Wednesday, August 23rd. The title for our devotional is Results of the Exchange. Yesterday, we saw Paul's indictment of both the Jews and the Gentiles as under the curse of sin and under God's wrath. Romans 1.18, remember, refers to both and says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Humanity's sin problems, as we've seen, are ultimately rooted in our problems of worship. Humanity exchanges worship of God for the worship of something or someone else. And in response to that, we read in Romans 1, beginning in verse 24, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, that men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. We'll go through the rest of them tomorrow, verses 28 to 31, but I think it's worth pausing here to explain what we just read. In verses 19 to 32, Paul is likely focusing on the Gentiles, generally. Later in chapters 2 and 3, he will indict the Jews as well, and they have their issues too. Remember, he's writing to both uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who are in conflict, and basically what he's saying is, you guys both need the grace of God. So that's what he's leading to, but to get there, he has to indicate why they need the grace of God, and so he has to describe the depravity of both. Both of them have worship problems, but again, here he's focusing on the Gentiles, generally. So, remember, verse 18 uh, discusses the wrath of God, and that's kind of the governing idea that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress their truth by their wickedness. So, how is God's wrath being revealed is highlighted in the repeated phrase, God gave them over. Remember, this is a present tense, so how is God's wrath being revealed? It's by God giving them over. We exchange the worship of God for the worship of cheap substitutes. Again, in verse 23 and 25, we see this. This then leads God to give sinful humanity over to their sinful desires in verse 24, their shameful lusts in verse 26, and a depraved mind in verse 28. This isn't to say that God's wrath is impersonal and deistic in the sense that humanity simply reaps the natural consequences of our actions when we reject God. This is not the biblical picture at all. God is personally and actively involved in creation, and his wrath is a holy response to those who do not worship and esteem him as God. It's a holy response to the sinfulness of creation. Notice that God is the subject, and the verb gave is active. God chooses not to infuse his personal presence and grace into the lives of sinful humanity who are not among the elect, and those who are exchanging worship of God for worship of other things. To the elect, he chooses to give his personal presence, grace, mercy, and salvation. This Paul will explain in much more detail throughout chapters 9 through 11. So instead of a passive get-what-you-deserve kind of thing, we should think of God's presence as a force holding back evil, both the evil of the human heart and the evil spiritual forces in this world. When God removes his presence, evil runs rampant. Like a dam holding back the torrent of water, so the presence of God restricts and restrains the onslaught of evil. When he gives more of his presence, goodness abounds. This is evident in the gospel, now revealed in Christ and the people of God who are the recipients of his presence, grace, and transforming power, and will be fully realized when Jesus returns and God's presence fully floods creation. The idolatry of humanity results in all kinds of evil behavior. 
He hones in on sexual sins in verses 24 and homosexuality specifically in verses 26 and 27. Much can be said about this passage and much has been written on this passage in our modern discussion of homosexuality. Some scholars have attempted to argue that Paul is only prohibiting unnatural homosexual activity like pederasty. Others have suggested that Paul was unaware of monogamous, loving homosexual relationships and therefore wasn't prohibiting those per se. Instead, he has only prohibited abusive homosexual relationships. For a thorough discussion of this topic, please see Preston Sprinkle's work and the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, which I've linked you to in the additional content section below. For today, suffice it to say that Paul is doing nothing here to divert from the traditional Jewish teaching on sexuality in his day, and today, for that matter. Still the Jewish teaching today. Much of this passage is similar to other Jewish ethical teachings. For example, see the Wisdom of Solomon or the Testament of Nephtali. If Paul were departing from that teaching, we would need to see some dramatic changes. Instead, he holds to the status quo of homosexual activity being sinful along with any other form of sexual immorality in verse 24. So Paul uses homosexuality here as an example largely because of it being contrary to nature in his, in his argument here. Just as it is contrary to nature to worship created things, when we could worship the Creator, so it is contrary to nature to participate in sexual activity with the same gender when the design of humanity is such that sexual activity is clearly meant to be between persons of opposite gender. I won't press that too much uh, into the birds and the bees here, but I think you can see his point. By way of application with sexual immorality running rampant in our culture today, I think it's important for us to keep in mind Paul's main driving point here, that we have a worship problem. We've exchanged worship of God for the worship of self, or we've exchanged worship of God for the worship of freedom. We worship pleasure instead of God. Christians often respond to the sexual immorality we see in our culture today by addressing the morality of sexuality itself, which is appropriate for Christian education, but largely ineffective in the broader conversation of the culture. It feels like we're playing whack-a-mole. We address one moral issue and another one pops right up. We're not getting anywhere. Instead, let's focus on the root of the problem. Until sinful humans exchange worship of created things for the worship of God, we aren't addressing the root cause. For reflection time today, I invite you to just consider how you view the crisis of sex and sexuality in our culture today. I encourage you to view it through the lens that Paul is describing it as here, primarily a worship problem. Commit to a genuine worship of God yourself, first and foremost. Second, before engaging in the culture war over sex and sexuality, engage in the spiritual battle for the worship of God.